Would you please remain standing now as we look to the Word of God, our sermon text, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Hear now the inspired Word of God. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word, our only infallible rule for faith and practice. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift of your word given to us. We ask that you speak to us now. We thank you for the sacraments and the ordinary means of grace that we are looking into over these weeks. We pray that you would Help us to see Jesus more clearly in the sacraments, in your word, and in our time together. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, as we work through the ordinary means of grace, you'll recall a couple weeks ago we looked to the word of God. Last week we looked at uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and the Lord's Supper, and as I told you then, uh, we weren't going to be able to complete everything we wanted to say about the Lord's Supper. We're looking to the Lord's Supper again today, as I'm sure you guessed from reading through our sermon text in Matthew 26. I'd like to, just as a way of kind of review, remind you of where we were last week. We talked about how the Lord's Supper calls us to look in a number of directions. It calls us, first of all, to look up toward God, to see how we relate to God, and then also to look around that we might see how we relate to one another, how we need to look within so that we might see our own uh, self in the light of who we really are, examining ourselves, making sure that we are right both with God and with others. It calls us to look back to what Christ did on the cross and to look forward to what God has for us in the future. This week we'll be continuing this series of sermons on the ordinary means of grace, uh, looking once more to the Lord's Supper, this time from Matthew's Gospel. And today's text, I think we can break down into three parts. First of all, uh, the context of the text, the context in which, from which uh, the Lord's Supper is to be understood. Uh, secondly, an explanation of the Lord's Supper in light of that context. And then finally, in light of those two things, a promise to us in the Lord's Supper. So first of all, context. Context is always very important. We talk about that a lot here. Context is king. If we need to understand something, the context in which we see it or learn it or, or find out about it is, is vitally important. I read a story recently about something that happened uh, some years ago. There was a woman in New York City and she was 
having lunch at a pizza parlor there. Uh, wonderful place to have pizza, great pizza in New York City. Uh, she was enjoying her meal as she ate lunch at this pizza place, had a little bit of pizza left, was getting it boxed up at the end of her meal when she looked out the window and saw on the street a man, very dirty, torn up clothes, digging through the trash can, looking for food. Well, she thought, of course, uh, what many of us would think at that point, here's a man in need of food, I have leftover food, it only makes sense. So she went outside and she walked right up to the man and handed him her leftovers so that he might have that instead of rummaging through the pizza, or through the trash can. He could have this delicious pizza Instead, little did she realize, as she walked into the situation, what she soon realized as she heard the director say, cut! There were movie cameras across the street that she hadn't noticed. This was the filming of a movie, actually. It wasn't a real person who was in need of food. It was just an actor. And she had interrupted the movie, so she thought she was doing a good deed. She thought she was doing something nice. She thought she was being helpful. Turned out she was actually being kind of a pain and getting in the way, right? What was the problem? She didn't understand the context of what she was seeing, right? She thought she understood, but if she understood the context, she would have had a right understanding of what was actually happening. It's important to understand context. We need to understand the chronological context of our text here. What, what is happening? They're sitting down to a meal, but it's not just any meal, is it? Right, as we saw in our unison scripture reading, this is the, the, the Passover meal that they were getting ready to eat. Verse 26, now as they were eating, it's not just any meal, it's the Passover. It's very important. Jesus had told the disciples that, that he longed to have this Passover with them, that he, he desired it greatly. It was something that was burning within his heart. Now we need to understand, I guess, if we're going to talk about the, the Passover, uh, we need to understand what the Passover is, really. That's part of the context, isn't it? Um, if, if you are unfamiliar with the context of the Passover, it goes back to the time in, in the book of Exodus where the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and God raised up Moses to deliver the people from, uh, from slavery and he went to Pharaoh and he said to Pharaoh, let my people go, right? But Pharaoh says, no, I'm not gonna do it. Wouldn't be prudent, not at this juncture. Well, he has some talks and Pharaoh starts to waver, but then no, and God takes matters into his own hands. He starts sending plagues, one after another, after another. They, they're getting really bad, and ultimately the 10th and final plague, God sends this plague that is going to be the plague of the, of the death of the firstborn son in each home throughout Egypt. The firstborn son in the home would be struck dead. God's not messing around anymore. Now there's a problem there, of course, and that is that the people of God, who, who are supposed to be getting delivered from Egypt, are living in Egypt, right? And, and they have firstborn sons too. 
So what's gonna happen here when the judgment of God comes over Egypt? How is it that the people of Israel, the Jews who are there in their midst, might be spared of this judgment? Well, God provides a way for them. He says what you need to do is take a lamb. It needs to be a male, a spotless lamb without blemish. Not a bone is to be broken in him, but sacrifice this lamb. And take take the blood of this sacrificed lamb and, and place it on the doorposts of your house and on the lintel above. And when the angel of death comes and in judgment extracts death from each home, you will pass over your homes. And have a meal to celebrate this. It, it should be a meal where the, the lamb will be roasted and eaten with unleavened bread. And and this celebration won't just be today, it will be something that's an ongoing nature. It will go on into the future, and that will be the, the Passover meal. It's something that he gave them that, that would remind them of, their, of his past faithfulness. And at the same time, for them, it pointed forward to the faithfulness that he would have in Christ Jesus. Well, in, in Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper here on this occasion, he's clearly linking it together with the Passover meal, right? He, it's not just a coincidence that it happens in this context, at this time. He's tying those together. And whereas the Passover meal had its own words of explanation that, that are part of the ritual to the Passover meal. So Jesus infused this meal with new words of explanation of what was going on, right? New words that spoke to a greater deliverance, not a deliverance just from slavery in Egypt, but a greater deliverance from slavery to sin and to death. And if eating the Passover meal served to to identify the Israelites as those who had been delivered out of Egypt, so in the same way it is that, that those who partake of the Lord's Supper, to them is conveyed the, the benefits of Christ's sacrifice on their behalf. When he says, take, eat, this is my body. You see, all of the Old Testament sacrifices, all of them really point forward to Christ. We'll get into that a little bit more in a minute. But Jesus says in verse 26, take, eat, this is my body. And the bread of life that he gives needs to be understood in the context of the Passover. There's other things that we need to understand too if we're to have a proper context of this bread of life, this life-giving bread that Jesus gives. And, and foremost among those, I think, is the, the manna in the wilderness that God provided to the people shortly after delivering them from Egypt. Right, in, in, in chapters 12 and 13 of the book of Exodus, we have kind of the institution of Passover. In chapter 14, we have them crossing the Red Sea in deliverance as God miraculously delivers them from Pharaoh and his 
armies. In chapter 15, we see this great song of praise where the people of God celebrate God's kindness and graciousness to them, and there is this great worship and praise and glory giving, and in the next chapter, we see the whole congregation grumbling, right? They grumble and they say, you know, we should have just stayed in Egypt because we're kind of hungry now. And, and if we had stayed in Egypt, at least we would have been well-fed. We might have died, but we would have died with full stomachs at least, right? Because, because that's what's important. Isn't that just like us, right? I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, think about it. God blesses us. He is gracious to us. He is kind to us. He gives us so much more than we deserve. And then the moment that something gets difficult, the moment something goes wrong, we want to shake the fist at God. You know, if I were God, I know how I'd have responded to that. <laughs> I know how I would have responded to that. You think you had it better in Egypt? Okay, that can be arranged, right? Back to Egypt, you're gone. I'm tired of it. I bless you, I bless you, I bless you. And the moment something goes wrong, you curse me. But that's not how God acts, is it? It's not how he acted to them, it's not how he acts to us. Thank God. We see what happened was in chapter 16, the whole congregation grumbled and he provided manna for them, this bread from heaven. It was a provision of God's grace. He provided for them, not because they deserved it, but because they needed it. And then in chapter 17 of Exodus, we see he, he, he provides water from a rock for them. Again, not because they deserve it, but because they needed it. He provides food and drink for them as a, an expression of his grace. And in both of them, he is pointing toward Christ, who also is pro provided by God as an expression of his grace, not because we deserve it, but because we need it. We can look to other things in the Old Testament, his background, uh, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, for sure he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet not, opened not his mouth like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep before it shears the silence. So he opened not his mouth, and so it was with Jesus who, who did not open his mouth, who did not keep himself from being sacrificed. We can look to John 6, some New Testament context, right? We looked at that last week. And it really helps us to understand, doesn't it? The idea, take, eat, this is my body, and, and drink of it, all of you, in verse 27 and 28, this is my blood, right? Because Jesus had said in John 6 that, that truly, truly I say to you, I am the bread of life. And later on, if anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. And whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And the people were confused. They said, what, what is he talking about? Eating his flesh? Drinking his blood? Well, remember, it's in the context of that having been said that Jesus says, this is my body. This is my blood. He's saying that, that in partaking those elements, we actually receive that which we truly need. We receive him. All this lay in the background, as Jesus said, these things as he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. We don't know the words that he said when he blessed it. You know, it doesn't, doesn't give us the, the prayer, the exact prayer that he prayed, but we do know this, that the customary words of blessing at that time were, blessed art thou, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. You see, the idea of a blessing wasn't so much saying, dear God, bless this food so that it does such and such, but rather an actual blessing of God. They were blessing God, thanking God, praising God, worshiping God, because God has been so gracious to them. He said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup when he had given thanks and said to them, drink of it all of you, for this is my body blood. So having covered all this context, we come to kind of an explanation, right? And, and perhaps in scriptures, I, there's, I mean, there's all kinds of confusing things, all kinds of uh, debated things in scripture, but, but perhaps none of them have been quite so, so hotly debated throughout the history of the church as to what exactly is meant when Jesus says, this is my body, and this is my blood. If you look at a Catholic background, uh, they, they believe in what was, we could call transubstantiation. Uh, specifically what that is, is that, that there was bread and a cup, and when, when the church gathers to partake of the Lord's Supper, the priest would say the words of institution, and we must remember that they were said in Latin back in the day until relatively recently, right? And, and he would say, you know, this is my body. Hoc est corpus meum is the Latin, right? And, and you might have caught when I said that, it sounds kind of like our phrase in English, right? Hocus pocus. And that's actually where that phrase comes from. It, it finds its derivation there, its etymology from, from that Latin phrase, that hoc est corpus meum. This is my body. Because what they thought happened was the priest said these words of, of, of uh, these words over the bread and over the cup, these words of institution, and, and the bread and the wine were magically changed into the body and blood of Christ. I mean, you look at them and they look like bread still and looked like wine still, but they weren't. That's what they believed. They were actually the physical body of Christ, the physical blood of Christ. 
and that the mass constituted a, a, a sacrifice of the physical body and blood of Christ once again. <clears throat> now, Luther comes along and he says, you know, I, I think it strains credulity to think that this is not bread and wine still, right? But it does say, this is my body, this is my blood. He thought, indeed, it must be that too. And, and so his explanation was that, that while remaining bread and wine, the real physical body and blood of Christ were present in, with, and under the elements so that they were kind of both there. Um, he actually had a discussion with Ulrich Zwingli, who spoke kind of as a, uh, as, as a Reformed pastor in 1529, and we won't go way into the details, but, but basically they, they tried to come together at that point to unite all of the Protestant churches. And they were able to unite on every point that they came up with except this one. Zwingli said, no, it's, it's, let's, let's be honest. We look at it, it's bread, it's wine, and that's all it is. It's just a memorial. It reminds us of the body and blood of Christ. It's, it's an empty symbol, as it were, was his thought. You know, just as Jesus says, I am the door, I am the shepherd, I am the vine. It's that kind of thing, and, and there's nothing more to it than that. But what we would argue along with John Calvin, is that, that there's something more to it than what Zwingli said and something not quite what Luther was saying. Kind of a middle road, if you would. The sacraments are, the confession says, holy, visible signs and seals appointed for God for this end, that by the use thereof he may fully declare and seal us to the promise of the gospel. A sign points us to something, a seal unites us to something, it guarantees it, and the Lord's Supper in a unique and mysterious way gives us the grace of God, holds us to him. In, in that, the, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ are actually present in the elements, though not physically present. They're spiritually present by faith, essentially is what he says. So, so as a result, what we realize is that far more than just an expression of our faith, the sacraments are an expression of God's faithfulness. Right? They're not just something that we do, rather they are a testimony to what Christ has done and to what he is doing even now. Jesus is the author of the sacrament, he is, he is the host of the supper, and he is the one upon whom we feast, that we might actually receive life, united to him, nourished by him, life in him. And he does this because, because he loves us, and because he gives himself for us. This is my body, this is my blood, is to be understood in that context of John 6. And it's not that he is pulled out of heaven somehow and placed upon the table, but rather when we partake the elements by faith, we are lifted up into the heavenlies with him. This is my blood, he says, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness 
of sins, my blood of the covenant. It's the embodiment of a new covenant, in fact. Luke, 1 Corinthians 11, both use this language. This cup is the new covenant of my blood. It harkens back to Jeremiah 31, which speaks of how the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, a new covenant whereby we will not just follow things formally and structure and outwardly, but inwardly we will actually be brought in and united with God in Christ Jesus. The meal communicates the forgiveness of sins, something we all need. It communicates the grace of God. Right? The larger catechism says this way about the Lord's Supper and, and about sacraments in general. It says that, that in sacraments, uh, grace and salvation are held forth in more fullness, evidence, and efficacy to all the nations. Grace is actually given to us in them as we partake of them. And so we follow the words of Jesus, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. It's not an empty symbol. Jesus is present in the bread. He is present in the cup. If we have faith, if we trust in him, he's not physically present there in that anyone who comes along and partakes of it will automatically receive the benefits of it. But if we come to the table in faith, then those very real benefits are ours. And if this is the case, it, it speaks to a question that is another question that has divided many churches over time. Uh, you know, how often should we partake of the Lord's Supper? What, what is the frequency with which we should come to the table? Sometimes I hear people say, you know, I don't, I don't want to do it too often. Right? Because if we do it real often, it loses its specialness. And I can understand that point. I understand it. I mean, uh, if you had like a, a special, let's say you, you got engaged at a special place, right? You, you popped the question at a place, you got engaged there. You, you know, going forward, you'd probably save that place for special occasions. You wouldn't just go there for like Thursday afternoon lunch, right? You know, you, you save that place for special occasions because, because it's a special place. But you know what you wouldn't do? You wouldn't say, you know, we got engaged during a meal once, so we're not gonna eat meals very often. I wanna save those for special times, right? You wouldn't do that because when you partake of meals, you do so to be nourished, to be fed, and that's something you need. And so it is when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are nourished, we are fed, and it's something we need. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that Christ's words were these, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And that's the big question, right? How often is often? Sinclair Ferguson, I liked his answer when I heard it. He said, I know exactly what he means when he says often. And I leaned forward to listen to what he had to say. He said, often means often, right? You know, oh, thanks, Sinclair, appreciate that. That clears things up. But we know what John Calvin said. He spoke against the infrequent nature in which many churches partook of the Lord's Supper. He said, it should have been done far differently. 
the Lord's table should have been spread at least once a week for the assembly of Christians. And promises declared in it should feed us spiritually. None is indeed to be forcibly compelled. He says we, we don't want to like push people into it. They don't have to. But all are to be urged and aroused. And the inertia of indolent people is to be rebuked. All like hungry men should flock to such a bounteous repast. Right? If it's just a matter of remembering what Christ had done, if it's an empty memorial and nothing more than just this empty symbol, then, then even then there's still benefits to doing it more frequently. But it's not just a matter of remembering what Christ has done. It's not just a member of a special feeling we get inside of us. Right? Thinking back to last, supper, last week where we talked about the Lord's Supper and what it was, right? You know, if, if it is a remembrance of what Christ had done, right? If it is, is something where we remember the great gift of Jesus on our behalf on the cross, I ask you this question. Do you want to remember Jesus and what he did on the cross more often or less often? If, if it is a proclamation of the gospel, whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death, should we proclaim the Lord's death more often or less often? If it is a blessing from God, do you want to be blessed by God more often or less often? If it is a participation in the body and blood of Christ, do you want to be united with Christ and have fellowship with Christ more often or less often? If it is a prompting to self-examination that we might look within ourselves and see where we have fallen short in terms of our relationships with God or with other men, that we might confess them, repent of them, turn to others and be reconciled with them. Should we do that more often or less often? And if it's a means by which we actually receive the grace of God. Do you want to do that more often or less often? Right? The means of grace are gifts God has given us by which he draws near to us. We ought to hunger for that. It also means by which he is pointed, we are pointed to the promises of God. And that's, as we wrap up here and go a little more quickly, we have to, Look at the promises of God. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. And that, by the way, was a Hebrew idiom for wine. That's what Jesus meant when he said that. Uh, we could go into a long discourse about that. We'll have to save that for another day. But I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it with new with you in my Father's kingdom. Here's the promise of God, the promise of Christ Jesus that we see in this passage that's so beautiful, so wonderful. Jesus is in control. He is in control. He says, I'm, I'm not going to partake of this again. He knows his death is coming. Why does he know his death is coming? He knows his death is coming because it's not a matter of somebody taking his life from him. It's a matter of him laying down his life. That's what we read in, in John 10. No one takes my life from me 
but I lay it down of my own accord. Right? And he proceeds to demonstrate over the next few days just how in control he is. Not only does he die just as he said he would. I mean, we can all do that, right? We could all say, well, I think I'm going to die next week, and maybe we die next week. That's impressive. But then he rises from the dead, just like he said he would. If, if dying when you said you were going to die is impressive, how about rising from the dead like you said you were going to? That is control. That is, that is sovereignty. That is power. And so, so in those events, we see that we can trust him. We can, we can believe his promises, right? When he, when he laid down his life, he showed us that even the most costly of promises, he would do everything he could to keep them. Right, sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I make a promise and, and like my promise is like a step beyond what I probably wish I would have promised, right? And, and so the question there is, when the rubber hits the road, am I going to be faithful to this hard to keep promise? And Jesus here showed that he will do whatever he can to be faithful to his promises. But then in rising from the dead, he showed that he is able to do anything. And that's a pretty good combination for us. If he will do whatever he can to be faithful to his promises, and he can do anything, we need never worry about his promises not coming true. And so we look to his promise here, and what promise is it? I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. We pray every week. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus promises here that that day is coming. It will come. God's kingdom will be made manifest in all of its power, in all of its glory, in all of its consummation. It's the feast that is talked about in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined, and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken." It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long for that day knowing that it is for sure to come? It's the same day spoken of in Revelation 19 by John. I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those 
who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Dear friends, you are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. If only you would believe. If only you would trust in Christ Jesus. If only you place your faith in him, depend upon him, turn away from your own efforts and trust in his sacrifice on the cross for you. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, our Passover Lamb who died for our sins and secures our salvation. He has invited you. And not only are you invited to the feast, you don't sit at some back table by the restroom or, or by the kitchen where the people are coming in and out all the time. You are invited to sit at the head table. Not only that, but yours is the most joyful, the most honored, the most wonderful part for, for when we trust in him, we become part of the church, the bride of Christ. We are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb because we are part of the marriage. We are the bride of Christ and his perfect, infinite, matchless, sacrificial love is for you. There is no length to which he will not go for you. All he has done is done to make all your dreams come true. Actually, far better than all your dreams coming true. For no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man even imagined what God has in store for those who love him. But the Lord's Supper, it is a foretaste. It is an appetizer. It is a promise of what is to come. Do you hunger for that? I know I do. We should have a hunger for that, a hunger for peace, a hunger for God's glory, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we should feed upon the one who can satisfy that hunger. That one is Christ. Let us trust in him. Let us often come to the table where we might eat his flesh and drink his blood and thus be nourished and grow in grace. That we might have our union and communion with him confirmed. That we might testify and renew our thankfulness, our engagement to God, our mutual love and fellowship with one another as members of his body. Let us eat and drink that we might have life. Let us taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Our Lord, we thank you for the beauty of your sacraments and for the beauty of your word. We thank you especially for the beauty of the living word, Jesus Christ. Make us a fit bride for him. Increase our hunger for him. Make us like him. And may we do it all for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are able now, would you rise with me as we sing together hymn number 459, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less.